very much connected to, to what Mark and Catherine just talked about. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and uh, grab it and open it up to Romans chapter 10. We're going to read together verses 14 to 21. Go ahead and stand as you turn there. Uh, Romans 10 verses 14 to 21. That's on page 946 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14. As we read, remember, we're reading God's Word. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's God's word. You may be seated. Well, some of you know that uh, my background a little bit is in baseball. I played a lot of my life and, and through college and occasionally have the opportunity to coach or to, uh, to teach kids about hitting. Uh, I didn't do a lot well in baseball, but I was a pretty good hitter, and so I, I like instructing kids and, and doing that kind of thing. And when you talk about hitting a baseball, there are really kind of two keys. And I find that really a lot of life is like this, where if you get the key things, it really helps solve a lot of the rest. So, so there, when it comes to hitting a baseball, there's two keys. The keys to hitting a baseball are balance and bat speed. Balance and bat speed. You're going, what does this have to do with anything? You'll figure it out in a minute, okay? Balance and bat speed. If you you got to have a strong base. you got to be balanced so you can see the ball. And you got to have a, a fast bat so that you can get the barrel to the baseball and hit it with some power, right? And that's how baseball is. It's got a couple keys. And a lot of things in life have, have that, right? Think about cooking, right? If you, if you want to cook really great food, the keys to cooking are great ingredients and balanced flavors, right? If you want to think about uh, creating a movie, or, uh, uh, the key to a great movie is a great story. If you don't have a great story, you don't have a great movie, right? Think about soccer, right? The key to soccer is pretending to be hurt <laughs> like you got shot even when nothing happened, right? That's one key. The other key apparently is to be very good at penalty kicks because that's the only way you can win, I guess, is, is if you are good at penalty kicks, Right, so, so everything has a, as a key. Well, well, when it comes to Christianity, the key to Christianity is faith. The key to Christianity is faith. Faith is trusting God. And that's what we've seen throughout this whole book of Romans, is that one of the keys to Christianity is faith. I, I'm not going to go through the entire uh, book here, but there's all kinds of places. If you were to go back and read in Romans, all kinds of places where it talks about the importance of faith. I want to just highlight a, a couple of them for you. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, go ahead and turn back there if you have your Bible. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, the word justified there means uh, to be set right, uh, to be brought into relationship, to, to be declared righteous before God, right? Therefore, since we've been declared righteous before God by faith, we have peace with God. There's peace with God. See, all through the Bible, we see that we are naturally hostile to God, that there is, there is enmity between us and God. We are against each other. God has created us to love and serve and adore him, and we love other stuff. God just doesn't really do it for us. And so the relationship is broken. And, and in the book of Romans here, it said, because of what Jesus has done, you could be made right with God by faith. Have peace with God. By faith. We saw this in the passage we looked at last week. And so uh, turn back to chapter 10 uh, if you moved over to, to chapter 5. And in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, we really get this kind of gospel uh, message of Christianity in a nutshell uh, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, right? That's the idea of faith. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. There's that word again, made right with God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You want to be saved from your sin. You want to be saved from the wrath of God. You want to be brought into a relationship with the God who made you that's peaceful rather than broken. It happens by faith. Without faith, there is no relationship with God. Without faith, there's no Christianity. So, so what we, that's what we've seen kind of all through Romans. And, and so here's what we're going to do today as we look at this next section in verses 14 to 21 is we're going to examine some things about faith, specifically uh, three particular things that we're going to look at. We're going to look at how faith comes. We're going to look at what happens when it comes. And we're going to look at our role in helping it come about. So faith is so important. Without faith, you're not going to know God. Okay, well, how does that come? That's the place we want to start. Then we want to go, what happens when it comes? When faith happens, what difference does it make in your life? And what role do we have to play in helping other people have faith? So that's where we're going to go uh, today. Before we dive into that, though, let's, let's take a moment and pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that it is profitable for us, that it equips us and prepares us to to know you. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. God, help us, to, help us to understand what you have to say here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so, so faith is key. Faith is crucial. Without faith, you can't have a relationship with God, which raises the question, how does faith come? Well, the good news is there's a very kind of simple logic to how faith comes. And in order to kind of understand that, let, let me use a different example that follows a similar kind of logic, all right? Sometimes single people will come to me or come to some of our other pastors or come to their redemption community leaders, and they'll say, I've got a little bit of a dilemma because I, I, I have this person in my life. I'm a Christian. They're not a Christian and I'm interested in dating them, or they're interested in dating me. Maybe it's a person that I work with, and I just have spent a lot of time with them, and they're cute, or hot, or funny, or clever, or rich, or whatever it is, and I just am interested in them. Or maybe it's, you know, our profiles got matched on Match.com, or maybe someone's trying to kind of connect us. They think, oh, you guys would really like each other. And the question comes up, 
I'm a Christian, they're a non-Christian, can I, can I go on a date with them? And I like to apply a very simple logic to answer that question, okay? And the logic begins with the question, is it okay for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? And the answer to that, according to the Scripture, is no. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, it says this, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. All right, if you're already married, don't try to get out of it. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In the Lord means as long as he's a Christian. If he's also in Christ, then, then she's free to be married. And so that's the principle, that a Christian who is, who is committed at a heart level, the most important thing in their life is Christ, should not marry a person who doesn't share that heart commitment. Okay. So from there, I go, okay, simple logic. If you shouldn't marry a non-Christian... I don't know too many people that were married that weren't engaged, right? Even if the engagement was like on the way to Vegas, right? <laughs> Everyone who, who got married got engaged. Everyone who got engaged was dating. Everyone who was dating went on a first date, right? So should a Christian go on a date with a non-Christian? No. Because it might lead to dating, and it might lead to engagement, and it might lead to marriage, and that would be sin, right? So there's a very simple logic there to, to be able to understand that. Now, you all seem a little uncomfortable with that. It, it's a little quiet in here, so maybe there's some things you've got to wrestle with about that. But, but you get the logic of it at least? Okay, well, Paul is going to use the same kind of logic in this particular passage as it relates to faith. Right? Verse 13 described the, the calling out of a person who, who now has faith. Look at verse 13. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who realize that God is holy and, and made them, those who realize that they have fallen short, that they have sinned, that they have broken God's law, they've broken God's heart, and they realize that Jesus Christ has come to live in their place, to die in their place, they call upon him. They say, God, save me because of Jesus. That's the cry of faith. Well, where does that come from? Well, it's a very simple logic that Paul gives us here. He says this, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Right? You're never going to call out, Jesus, save me, if you don't believe in him. Get the logic? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Right? You're, no one's going to go, man, Jesus is my treasure if they've never heard about him. If they've never heard what he did. If they've never heard how much he loves them as, according to the scripture. If they've never heard that, they're not going to believe. Then he says... And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The word preaching there doesn't necessarily just mean standing on a stage. It's the idea of heralding or announcing without someone telling them, hey, I got some good news for you. Without someone preaching, they're never going to hear it, they're never going to believe it, and they're not going to call on the Lord. Well, and then verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? You get the logic? It's a very simple, very straightforward, easy to understand thing. How does faith come? It comes as the people of God are sent, as they preach, as other people hear, as they believe, and then as they call on the Lord. That's how faith comes. It doesn't come other ways, right? Sometimes people will say uh, something like this, and they'll quote, this is a phrase that's been along. I don't know who actually invented the phrase, but they'll say something like, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. 
Hogwash. That's garbage. Right? According to this passage, right? No one ever came to Christ through a silent sermon. Now, the way we live, the way we conduct ourselves, it definitely lends credibility to our message. You can undermine yourself in all kinds of ways by the way you live if it's inconsistent with what you say. But at some point, someone has to say something. Words have to get said that talk about Christ in order for someone to believe, right? That's what he says down in verse 17. Look at verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes. How does it come? It comes through hearing. Through hearing what? The word of Christ, the gospel, the good news. And isn't it amazing that God's primary strategy, in fact, only strategy, is us. Did you ever think about that? Right? Jesus spends these three years teaching his disciples, teaching people, feeding the sick, preaching the gospel, doing miracles. And he says, all right, guys, you're going to change the world. See you later. I'm out of here. And he sends his Holy Spirit. I mean, that's amazing. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that the church is plan A and there is no plan B. What a privilege. What an honor that the God of the universe who is trying to to help the people who he made in his image to know and love him, that, that the thing he's using is us. People sent. And it's all of us. It isn't just the people who you know, decide, hey, I'm called to go to a foreign land. I'm called to go to Turkey. It's all of us because Scripture says, it it quotes Jesus uh, saying, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. We are called together collectively, sent to go and to proclaim a message. And it's a huge privilege, which is why it says, uh, says there in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Because without this news, without this preaching, people go to hell. That's not pleasant. That's not fun. It's not lighthearted. That is serious. There's an urgency to this. Everyone spends eternity somewhere. Which raises a question, well, what about those who haven't heard? It's a great question. Maybe you've asked that. I, I get that question quite a bit. And Paul actually answered that question back in Romans chapter 1. About two years ago, we were looking at that. And back there, here's what he said. He said, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness of men who, who suppress what has clearly been made known through creation. In other words, everybody in the world, through what's been made, can tell there's a God. And even through what we know, we have not honored or loved God. We've, we've suppressed that. We've rejected that. The way he describes it is we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've loved created things more than we've loved God. And yet, you, I mean, you watch a sunset. You go to the Grand Canyon. You watch a baby be born. There's a God. And everyone in the world has, has revelation that that happens, and yet so many reject him. And, and in Romans 1 there, it says that if you continue in that state without Christ, God's wrath is on you. So what about those who have never heard? They need to hear. 
Right? This is not like when I've, I've had some LDS missionaries come, come to my house. This was back when they used to come to my house. Um, and uh, and they, they come over, and, and I you know, give them a glass of water, and I try to really love on them because I've talked to enough of my LDS friends who went on missions and were mistreated by Christians who wanted to have a Bible bash. I don't want to do that, so I, I want to love them, but we, get, we got to talking. And, and I remember at one point, and they found out I'm a Christian, and they find out I'm a pastor, and they say, oh, that's really great that you're trying to help people. And I say, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. So if I died as a Christian, not a Mormon, would I go to hell? They said, oh, no. Now, you might go to a lesser heaven, but you wouldn't go to hell. I said, well, then what are you trying to screw me up for? I'm, I'm, I'm going to some version of heaven. That's pretty good, right? Like, why are you coming in here trying to, to get me all confused, right? And, and listen, the Christian message is not salvation by death. That all people who die automatically go to heaven. The Christian message is that apart from Christ, you die apart from God. You aren't saved. You go to hell. There's an urgency to this. It is why Paul is going to spend his entire life traveling the world to unreached people so they will know. It's why he's going to say in Romans 15, it's my ambition to preach where Christ has not been named. I want to go to people that don't have him because faith comes from hearing. That's how faith comes. Secondly, what happens when faith comes? This passage tells us a little bit about that. It tells us what goes on in the heart of a person. What, what, what kinds of things emerge when faith comes. The first thing we see is that when, when faith comes, the gospel is obeyed. Right Here in verse, uh, verse 15, he says, How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Right? This is a great message. This is a great privilege. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. In other words, there are some people who are going to hear it and are going to reject it. But for those who receive it, the, the flip side of that is they are obeying the gospel. Isn't that an interesting way to say that? Obeying the gospel? Not receiving the gospel, not believing the gospel, not trusting the gospel, but obeying the gospel. It reminds me of back in chapter 1, verse 5, when Paul says, Uh, that all of this is about the obedience of faith among the nations. Why use that language of obeying the gospel? Because to put your faith in Christ is to submit to Christ. It is to surrender to Christ. It is to yield to him. It is to say, not my will, but yours be done. That, that, That both is and results in a kind of obedience of the gospel. Right? And that's what happens. That's what you want to do if you're a Christian. Right? Romans 6, we, we studied this sometime back. In, in chapter 6, verse 17, it said this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Here's what this means. When faith comes, you're given a new wanter. You want different stuff, right? Think about it this way. If you're a parent or a grandparent or if you oversee people or you're a coach or a teacher, you want the people you're leading to do the right thing, don't you? You you want them to do what they're supposed to do. But you know what you want even more than that? You want them to want to do what they're supposed to do, right? It's great when your kids just do what they're supposed to do, but when they want to do it, it's like, ah. Right? I mean, it's just this divine moment. It doesn't happen very often, and it's, 
Incredible, right? Well, well this is what happens is, is when faith comes, you want to do what God wants. You want to do the right thing. He changes your heart. That's an amazing thing. Another thing that happens uh, when faith comes is that some people who see our faith get jealous of what they see. Love this. It says uh, in, in verse 19, talking about Israel, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Paul's, again, in this context, he's been talking about how come all these Israelites who grew up with all the promises of God aren't in Christ? Did they not get it? And, and Moses says in verse 19, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Now, we'll talk about this more next week in, in Romans 11. One of the things we'll see in Romans 11 is that part of the reason that God is allowing all these non-Jewish people to enter relationship with him is so that the Jews will look at them and go, oh, I'm jealous. Oh, I want what they have. Not in a materialistic way, right? I'm not talking about bling and money and material stuff. I'm talking about those people know God. They have what I've longed for. I was talking to a guy after the first service. He said, my wife has been friends with this Jewish woman for a long, long time. And she has repeatedly told her, I wish I could believe like you. She's jealous, right? Are the people in your life, if you're a Christian, jealous by what they see? Is there such vibrant faith, such vibrant love, such willingness to forgive, such eagerness to humble yourself and bless others that they love it? That they go, wow, I, I, where do you get the power to be like that? My favorite stories about this is a friend of mine who was leading a small group, a group of Christians that would get together and encourage each other and study the Bible. And uh, his wife had a hairdresser that she had been sharing with for a long time and had been inviting to this small group. And finally, after years and years, the hairdresser said, all right, I'll come tonight. And that night was the night of the group. And that group, that night, was supposed to study Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, some of you know what that story is, but what that story is, is God strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead for lying. Okay? This is a seeker-hostile passage. And so, so my friend goes, what do I do? Like, do I change the study? Like, do we, should we study John 3.16 instead? Or, I mean, something a little bit, you know, whatever. And, and he said, you know what? God's in charge of this. God's sovereign over this. We're just going to do Ananias and Sapphira. And so they get together, and they're talking. And, and this lady's just kind of sitting there, and she's listening. And everyone's talking about it. And finally, at the end, he, he asks her, he says, well, what do, you, what do you think of all this? And her answer was, I just can't believe how you all get together and love each other like this. Ananias and Sapphira, like not <laughs> on her radar, right? She was just going, I, I've never been around a group of people that listen to each other like this and love each other like this. This is amazing, right? When, the, when faith comes, it should come in such a beautiful way that it makes some people jealous. But the flip side of that is it's also going to make some people angry. Verse 19, look at this. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Saying to the Jews, some of the Jews are going to be angry because of the faith that the Gentiles have. Some of them are going to be upset at that. And we see that in the story of Jesus. If you follow Jesus at all through the Gospels, you see some people love him and some people hate him, right? The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. 
some people get angry, which is why we shouldn't be surprised when some people don't look at our, you know, small group and go, wow, this is so amazing how you all love each other. And they go, you mean God kills people like that? And they're upset about it, and they're going to have problems with that, and they're going to have questions about that, and they're going to have frustration, and they're going to reject you, and they're going to not rent you office space, and you're going to have to start working from home, and you're going to, I mean, stuff like that is going to happen, because when faith comes, it's polarizing. It's beautiful to some, it's angering to others. But the last thing, the best thing that happens when faith comes, we see in verse 20, is we're found by God. God finds us. It says, verse 20, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Here he's talking about these non-Jewish people who have put their faith in Christ, and God here is saying, I've been found by those who weren't looking for me. Which means on the flip side, when faith comes, we find God. We find God. We are brought into peace, into relationship with God. Not just that God forgives our sin, overlooks our mistakes, but that God becomes our Father, our perfect heavenly Father who loves and adores us. When faith happens, that's what happens. We find God. And that's what the Christian message is all about. It's about people who were lost and didn't want anything to do with God and their lives were filled with brokenness because of it. And they find out that Jesus came and he loved them and he lived in their place and he died in their place and he rose from the grave. And they say, yes, I want that. And the way to God is open to them. And they don't have to get to God through a priest. They don't have to get to God through a religion. They get to God through Christ. They found him. That is why we want to be part of this. That is why we want people to know him. That is why there's urgency. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And when that faith happens, we find God. So, what's our role in that? What's our role in helping people discover faith. What's our role in faith coming? Right? If faith comes by hearing, what, what role do we have to play? How are we supposed to respond to this? And so I want to talk finally about our role in seeing faith come. And here's the first thing you need to see is that this is not a job just for specialists. This is a job for the whole church. This is not the kind of thing that we just outsource to those who are willing to go to the other side of the world. This is something for everybody love this quote by David Bosch. He was a guy who studied mission stuff all through the 70s. He said this, Missionary activity is not so much the work of the church as simply the church at work. You get the difference? Missionary activity, this idea of going, being sent with the message of Christ, isn't just the, the work of the church. Like, here's this thing we do. It's the church at work. It's why we exist. It's what we're here for, right? Everything else in our lives, we would do better in heaven, right? We would love each other better in heaven. We would learn more in heaven. We would worship God better in heaven. Why has he left us here? Because there are people who don't know him. That's why we're here. And so this is not the kind of thing we outsource. This is the kind of thing that all of us have to own. 
And so I want to talk to you a little bit about how we're owning this at Redemption Church. And part of this is going to be informative, and hopefully part of it is equipping and inspiring you to play a role through this. I want you to be asking, what's the role that I play in helping people come to faith? What role do I play? We don't all play the same role. We don't all have the same part. Not everybody is supposed to do what I do. Not everybody's supposed to do what Mark and Catherine are doing. But somebody, all of us, are supposed to do something. Do you know your role? That's what we're going to try to d- dive into. You get a little bit of a flavor of what this mission's about in Acts chapter 1. In Acts 1, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's about to ascend to the Father. He's about to send his church into the world. And here's how he does it. He gives these marching orders. Acts 1.8. He says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. A couple things to note there. You is plural, right? It's it's not you individually. It's it's y'all, right? But y'all will receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come upon y'all. And y'all, this is a plural word, right? It's, It's for all of us. It's not just for the disciples. It's for everybody. Notice he also says, you will be my witnesses. doesn't say you should be, or you ought to be, or if you're really faithful, you'll be. He says, no, you'll be a witness. Your life will say something to the world around you. You're going to say something. You will be a witness. And then, this kind of gives the outline of the book of Acts, really, but it's instructive for us. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the immediate city they lived in. And in all Judea, which is the region they were in, for us it would be like a state. And in Samaria, and Samaria is interesting because that's also part of the same region, but it's different culturally. The Samaritans uh, were a very different culture. And then he says, to the ends of the earth. So that provides a little bit of us of some marching orders. Of how, do we, how do we help faith come? Because we need to be together as a people. Y'all of us need to be engaged in this. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about, about what we're doing and uh, how this works. And I'm going to actually go backwards, okay? We'll start with ends of the earth, and we'll move toward, uh, toward our local situation in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a lot of things that redemption is doing across the world. And you heard Mark talk a little bit about what they're doing in Turkey. There's some other works in Turkey that we're supporting that do church planting and uh, help uh, rescue people coming out of uh, human trafficking situations and discipling new converts. But I also want you to know, and, and I, I'll, I'll have him just... Uh, r- put this up on the screen for you, but if you go to redemptionaz.com, you can see that one of the most recent po- posts on global efforts that we're doing. You can see all that we're doing, but we're, we're working in Ethiopia. We're working in Morocco. Uh, a lot of those are helping people in, in very tangible word and deed ways. We're doing work in Honduras, uh, helping partner with people related to medical needs. We uh, have some people that we're supporting in China uh, and also in Ghana, and uh, so there's a lot going on. I, I don't have time to go into all of those, but with, uh, with one church and seven congregations, there's a lot of international work that goes on. And just so you know this, uh, that uh, one of the ways you get involved with this is by praying for those things. Another way is by giving. Every time you give, you're giving to that stuff, whether you realize it or not. That's just how it works. That's how we do it. Um, so ends of the earth is a really significant thing. And with that, I want to just go, and I'll do this briefly, I hope. (laughs) 
I hope. I, I always say that, and then I, like 15 minutes later, it's like, hey, I thought that was briefly, all right? All right, so let me give you some distinctives of how we do ends-of-the-earth missions-type ministry, okay? Because I think sometimes people don't understand how we do it or why we do it, and I want you to just kind of help own this with us in terms of why we do this. The first distinctive that we have uh, as it relates to ends-of-the-earth or missions ministry is we believe in both proclamation and demonstration, Word and deed, preaching the gospel and loving the person. Now, this particular passage we've looked at here today focuses really on the preaching side of it. But if you watch the ministry of Jesus and you see lots of other things in the scripture like the command to love our neighbor as ourself, uh, you see both of these uh, in action. And, and it's really important that we see both are biblical. They're both key, right? This is a place where a lot of times as people try to do missions work, they land in one side or the other, right? Let me give you kind of this, this spectrum that I think can be helpful. Um, there's a sort of spectrum here. On one side is kind of the idea we should just serve, right? These are people who go, you know what? People don't have clean water. Get them water. People need shoes. People need food, it doesn't matter if you tell them about Jesus. They're going to die if they don't get this, all right? You, you just, just serve them, all right? On the other side would be people that would kind of say, just preach. They'd say, well, what good is clean water if you don't have Christ? What good is food if, if you don't have Jesus, right? And so you get kind of these, right, this just serve side is more of a social gospel type thing. The just preach side is more of your kind of fundamentalism uh, that just says all people need a message. And then you have kind of practical, like just pragmatic people that are not quite as far on those ends, but these are people who would go, you know, these folks would say, um, you know, pra practically we'll serve, and if they ask you, then tell them. Right? Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Right? Over here, you'd have people that go, well, we're going to feed people, but it's really just so we get an opportunity to share the gospel. Which, you know what that says? Really? It says we don't care about the whole person. We're just using them to, to give them what we want to tell them. That's not all that loving, right? Which is why people, when we do that, they often feel used. Feel like, oh, you're just, you're, bait, you're, you're baiting me with clean water, but you're switching me with the gospel. And so what we want to advocate for is a biblical middle ground. This is loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, and preaching the gospel boldly. And so the reason I go through this is to say this is how even locally we try to do ministry. We want to partner with people that are serving real needs and preaching the gospel. We want to do that. It also means when we look at opportunities globally, these are our priorities. So there are lots of good works that people are doing on either end of this spectrum that we don't feel called to because we want to aim for the middle. You get that? So first redemption distinctive is proclamation and demonstration. Uh, second is integrated identity. Integrated identity. And this is kind of inside baseball language here, but, but I want to explain this. Uh, identity is the idea of when someone goes overseas, how do they represent themselves? What do they say they do, right? So you heard Mark talk about when people say, what do you do? He says, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. I'm a religious man, I want to tell you about Jesus, right? That's the same thing he tells us he's there to do, right? When he comes here, he says, I'm there to tell people about Jesus. When he goes there, 
He says, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. It's an integrated identity, right? Lots of mission work, and, and I, lot, people will have strong feelings about this, and if that's you, I, I don't mean to totally dismantle it or offend it. I think there's even good motives for why people do some of what they do, but lots of mission work is at, at the church back home, I tell you I'm a missionary preaching the gospel, but if someone asks me here, I say, oh, well, I'm just an English teacher. I just am a medical worker. I'm just a nurse. When the reality is most of your funding doesn't come from teaching English. It comes from preaching. It comes from the people back home who think you're preaching the gospel. And in, there's this amazing thing that's been invented that's really cr- made a, this a problem. It's called the Internet. And that was funny, I thought. But, um, have you heard of this thing, the Internet? And Google, it's this amazing, you can search for stuff. And what happens is people in those other countries now that have the internet type in a person's name and they go wait a minute I see you on that church website you said you were here to teach English there you said you were a missionary I don't trust you anymore and the witness is hurt it's injured it's dissolved by that and so what we try to do is say we're gonna try to support people that have an integrated identity and the good news is if you go in to do business to do like business work, you can get into any country in the world. The third uh, priority for us or distinctive for us is just that the nations are coming to us. I'll post some more stuff about this online, but it's amazing when you think about all that the, that's happening with the nations coming to us. 60,000 uh, students at ASU, 10,000 of them are international students. 160,000 refugees that come to Phoenix. Uh, Huffington Post said that, that Phoenix is the most religiously diverse city in the country. There's some fascinating stuff about that. And so because those nations are coming to us, that's kind of like our Samaria, our region, but with a lot of cross-cultural influence. So there's some things that we do kind of regionally as it relates to Samaria. We, we care for the needs of Latino migrants through a community center in Mesa. We teach Somali refugees, ESL, and a lot of other things uh, with those refugees. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities that, that happen Um, Because of where we are geographically, less of this is near us. Most of this is near Alhambra, is near Arcadia, is near Tempe. uh, But we have opportunities to partner in those things as much as we we want. All right, the third category is Judea. This is the region. What do we do in the region? How do we do this? Well, we plant churches, right? We've planted a church in, if if the United States is our region, we've planted a church in San Francisco. We've uh, invested in church plants here in Phoenix and in Tucson and are training and developing and resourcing significant church planters, all right? So that's what we're doing, ends of the earth, Samaria, Judea. Now, if all that, if that's all you hear, you might start to think, well, gosh, the only way for me to be involved in this is to give money. And that's not true. It's a big way. It's definitely the best way to get involved with all that stuff. But there's also a Jerusalem. There's a local area. There's a local community. There's a neighborhood. There's a workplace. There's a sports team. There's a a, a gym that you belong to. And you have an opportunity to be a witness there. I just think about this locally, right? We have opportunities to partner with organizations like House of Refuge, and there's a backpack event coming up that you could serve uh, with our neighbors that are helping people deal with homelessness. There's stuff like that you can do locally. But we have 600-plus people that go out every day as ambassadors for Christ. Do you see yourself that way? I was just struck hearing Mark and Catherine share how ordinary everything they said was. 
especially Catherine, what do you do? Well, moms come over. We uh, love them, hang out, talk about Jesus. Well, I could never do that. What? What's the difference? The difference is she sees herself as a missionary. We don't. We, we get kind of, we just fall asleep at it. But this is what God's called us to be. This is what God's called us to do. I love the story of this one lady I heard about who, she said, uh, she, someone would ask her, what do you do? And she said, I'm an ambassador for Christ, cleverly disguised as a Dillard's clerk. <laughs> That's what she saw herself as. Do you see yourself that way? I'm an ambassador for Christ, cleverly disguised as a mom. I'm an ambassador of Christ, cleverly disguised as a math teacher cleverly disguised as a banker, cleverly disguised as a plumber, as an AC repair guy, cleverly disguised as a sales guy, cleverly disguised as a pilot. But what I really am is I'm an ambassador for Christ. Do you see that yourself that way? If we don't see ourselves that way, we miss out on this mission. And so I want to give you kind of one more tool that I think is really helpful for how we understand and, and do this mission at a local level, okay? And it's called the three strands of evangelism. Three strands of evangelism, and I'll draw this again up here. Hopefully, uh, many of you hopefully can see this. Uh, but the three strands of evangelism are really important. Um, and he, the reason they're important is because if you don't get this, you'll think, well, I'm not really an extrovert. I'm not really a preacher. I'm not really a missionary. I don't know if this ever really applies to me. All right? So, but this will help you, okay? So here's the first thing. The first strand that goes into this rope is relationship. Building relationships with people that don't know Christ. Building real friendships. Yeah, not just using them as a chance to get a notch on your belt, but really loving somebody. Caring for them. Having them over for dinner. Building a relationship. Okay, that's the first strand. Second strand is sharing. Or you could say preaching. Telling them. Opening your mouth. Here's who Christ is. Here's what Christ has done. Sharing the gospel. The third thing is inviting. And specifically, inviting people into community. Inviting people into that small group where they could go, wow, I've never seen people love like this. Inviting people to church. Inviting people to a pool party. Inviting people into the community where they can see you're not the only freaky, weirdo, Jesus freak person. We're all like that. They go, wow, maybe there's something to this, right? And so when these things come together, it's a strand that's strong. And this is how we do it as a church. Which means, when I ask you the question, what's your role in this mission? Do you see yourself here somewhere? Maybe it's all three. Maybe it's inviting. Maybe you're the one that has the courage and the experience to share. All of us have the ability to love our neighbor and are, and are commanded to do it. But do you know your role? This also means when we gather as a church, you need to realize there are outsiders that have been invited. They don't get all your Christian lingo, and they don't think about politics the way you do, and they don't believe everything you believe. And when you assume that everyone here, oh, we're all like-minded, eh, wrong. And we, we, when we do that, we actually hurt our witness. Which means, so, so I just, I love this because, again, it asks us the question, what's your role? What role do you have to play? Whether it's a mom or a pilot or a retail clerk or a pastor, you've got a role to play. And it matters. This is the mission of the whole church, taking the whole gospel 
to the whole world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you love us, that you've entrusted us with this message. And God, thank you that you um, have opened our hearts and eyes to see all that you're doing. God, help us to love our neighbors as ourselves and give us boldness to preach a message so that some would hear it and believe and call on you. We ask that of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, now we get to respond. Um, I love Christianity. It's simple. Last night we had one of the biggest talks with our little four-year-old about religion so far. And I imagine it's just going to be very repetitive. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then you get saved and you come to church and it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that's a good thing. Because Jesus is why we're here, why some of us believe. It's why we have purpose in life. So that's what we're going to respond towards today. We're going to sing songs about Jesus. We're going to give money because we believe that this money is being used to proclaim Jesus. And we're going to take communion because it's about Jesus. Just a reminder, communion is bread and juice. Bread is the body, the life of Jesus that was perfectly lived in my place and in your place. And the juice is his blood which was shed, perfectly absorbing the